0: you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: Now, some of you smart math folks may be saying to yourself, well, it's probably more about the GDP cratering in the context of COVID-19 than it is about somehow the stock market going up so much more. The problem with that is that using pre-pandemic GDP, the ratio is still 170%, an all-time high, higher than that March 2000 dot-com bubble peak. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Monday, August 31st, and today's episode is sort of a super brief where I'm going to share a lot of numbers and a lot of stories just even more briefly than usual. And The common theme is the stories the stock markets are telling us right now. And I thought that this was a good time for this episode, given that we're in that classic transition from summer to fall, trying to wrap our heads around everything going on, looking, I think, uneasily at what's gonna happen with the markets as we go into this election season. So should be a pretty interesting way to try to get a sense of just what's out there and what's happening. Let's start with the number that this episode was named for. Sven Henrik, who's Northman Trader on Twitter, tweeted out a chart this morning showing that the market cap to GDP ratio has reached 184.7%. That is the ratio of the total market capitalization of US companies to the total GDP. That 184.7% number compares to around 130% at the start of the year. According to a different tweet from Liz Ann Saunders, who's the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab, it's actually 190%, with the total market cap of all U.S. stocks hovering just under $37 trillion. The previous high of 167% was in March of 2000, which was obviously at the peak of the dot-com bubble, so a precedent that isn't really great. Some of you smart math folks may be saying to yourself, well, it's probably more about the GDP cratering in the context of COVID-19 than it is about somehow the stock market going up so much more. The problem with that is that using pre-pandemic GDP, the ratio is still 170%, an all-time high, higher than that March 2000 dot-com bubble peak. Now, obviously, a key element in this equation has to do with valuations, and Michael Santoli at CNBC tweeted out commentary from Tony Dwyer at Canaccord Who said this morning that he is, quote, withdrawing SPX targets because there is no precedent to how high valuations can go. Dwyer still thinks this is a long-running expansion backed by a Fed intent on staying accommodating indefinitely. This is the next point I wanted to bring up about to what extent this is an asset bubble. The argument that Dwyer was making just a second ago is that there is an asset bubble that is effectively aided, abetted, and enabled by Fed policy. Interestingly, Neil Kashkari, the Fed governor, was on Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway's Odd Lots show today, and Nick Carter commented on it saying, quote, my big takeaway from Neil Kashkari's Odd Lots episode, even if asset inflation is real, which is something he doesn't explicitly concede, it's a mere externality of maintaining full employment and hence worth accepting. So, Nick is effectively saying here that Neil is arguing that even if there were an asset bubble, which he's not willing to concede, that asset bubble would be worth it if it came with full employment at the same time. Now, given that, Nick's next point is really key. He writes Take this to a logical extreme. A fully employed society where the bottom 50% has guaranteed employment, say, pumping gas while asset-owning oligarchs increase their share of wealth and the Gini coefficient approaches one, is it still acceptable under this framing? The point that I think Nick is making and making really well is that there's a question here, and it's a question of the type of society we want to live in. Which brings us to our next number, Jeff Bezos at $200 Last week, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, became the first person ever to be worth $200 billion. This instantly, as you might imagine, became an immense symbol for inequality. Robert Reich tweeted out, Today, Jeff Bezos' net worth hit $200 billion and Elon Musk's hit $100 billion. Yet 30 million Americans report that their households didn't have enough food in the past week. American capitalism is off the rails. As if to put a nice exclamation point on this, protesters put up a guillotine in front of Bezos' house. This type of symbolism is incredibly important, especially moving into this election season where the stakes of this type of symbolism are higher than ever. What's going on guys? I'm excited to share that one of this month's breakdown sponsors is Crypto.com. The next number that I wanted to look at goes back to Elon Musk, who just was mentioned before, and it has to do with individual stock trading at all-time highs. In the first half of 2020, individual investors accounted for 19.5% of shares traded in the U.S. stock market. That's up from 14.9% last year and double where it was in 2010. On some days, the number has been as high as 25%. Now, importantly, and this is one of the big questions for people is, are these folks actually moving markets? It seems to be not the case for huge large cap stocks, but there is some evidence that there is correlation between popularity with individuals and price around some of the smaller stocks and the cases we've heard be most notable this year, the Kodaks and Nikolas. Still, what's interesting to me is to see these numbers validate what has been a key market narrative of the increase in action of individual investors. Another number that relates to that as well is that Robinhood is not just leading the bunch when it comes to the narrative of individual investors, it's also leading in the complaint column as well. The FTC is getting far more complaints about Robinhood than any of the other similar platforms right now. More than 400 this year, 473 in fact, which is about four times as many as Schwab and Fidelity. Now, the easiest explanation for this is much less about Robinhood and much more about Robin Hood's clientele who often don't know exactly what they're getting into. They're playing with financial tools that they simply don't really understand. Now, if there is a narrative anchor around Robin Hood's neck, it is this. It's that the idea that they make it so easy to trade isn't necessarily a good thing. It can, in fact, be a bad thing because people start doing things that they're not prepared for and betting money that they can't afford to lose. Expect this to be a bigger part of the conversation to the extent that this percentage of investors in terms of what they account for of U.S. shares traded continues to grow. Last up, I want to talk about a different market activity. I want to talk about Buffett's bet in Japan. Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has quietly put in about $6 billion into five Japanese trading houses, taking about 5% stakes in them. And I'm seeing a lot of chatter about this as diversification out of USD-priced assets. This certainly seems credible as Buffett has been vocal about his complaint of how expensive things are right now. At the same time, David Fickling on Bloomberg points to a simpler explanation, which comes to Buffett's love of free cash flow. Fickling writes that of the 10 companies that produced more than $2 billion of free cash flow at a yield of more than 10% while trading at a discount to book value, three of them are Japanese trading houses. In other words, these actually are just the type of value investment that Buffett loves. The interesting thing about this, however, is that the narrative machine is already churning on this one. Is the new value trade to be found away from the US, away from USD-denominated assets, and in the global markets? If that narrative takes hold, that could be extremely interesting in terms of behavior that follows. So I think that's a good question to leave on. That's a fun question to keep our eye on as we head into September. It's been a crazy August, and I am certainly looking forward, although not without some trepidation, to what this fall has in store for us. So until tomorrow, guys, I appreciate you listening. Thanks for your ratings and comments. Thanks for your engagement on Twitter. I appreciate you all. Let's dive into fall. And uh, until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.
1: This episode is brought to you in part by Purina. Purina is dedicated to creating richer lives for pets and the people who love them. From helping older pets think like their younger selves to making cat ownership a possibility for more people than ever, Purina is helping pets thrive so they can live long, healthy and happy lives. Purina has you covered for all your furry friends' needs, whether they meow or bark. From litter to treats to their best-in-class, nutrient-packed food with taste your pets will love. Purina's got your back at every stage of your pet's life. Your pet gives you the joy of the spring sunshine all year round. So today and every day, care for your pet with Purina. Your pet is Purina's passion. To learn more, head to Amazon.com backslash Purina.